the University of California Riverside presents Blue, Gold, and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying Black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders, and community partners to explore the intersection of being Black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. My name is Dominique Beal. Today, I have a super special guest, and I'm super excited to amplify his voice today. Professor Jennings is a professor here at UCR in Media and Cultural Studies. He's going to be talking to us about his upbringing and some of his past experiences and what influences um, his field of study and his area of work, particularly within speculative fiction um, and things that have to do with, you know, black art, African art. Um, Professor Jennings, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Dominic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, I'm really excited for this episode and super happy to have you on. So um, really quickly, if you can, just tell our guests um, and our audience in your own words, um, your area of study and what you specialize in here at UCR as a professor. Okay. Again, um, I'm in the uh, Department of Media and Cultural Studies. Uh, This is my fifth year with the University of California at Riverside. Uh, Previously, I was at University of Buffalo uh, at SUNY. And before that, uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And before that, Jackson State University in my home state of Mississippi, HBCU. Nice. So, um, yes, yeah, so I've been I've been teaching for a while. I started out as an art teacher. Uh, my background is in uh, graphic design, illustration. I've always had a very keen interest in um, black images and black culture and how they get kind of like regulated or mediated through illustration and comics and things of that nature. I'm also a massive hip hop fan and, and a hip hop scholar as well. So, um, so, so a lot of my a lot of my work is around um, creative culture, creative visual culture, and various stances of um, black creative endeavors. Right. So um, here at the university, though, I've been teaching uh, in the media studies area, and I created a course uh, called uh, Afrofuturism and Visual Culture, which is essentially like an introduction to this phenomenon of black speculative culture called. Afrofuturism, you know, which has actually become pretty mainstream post Black Panther, right? So, um, yeah, and so that's a, basically a class that looks at like the um, the initial, you know, coining of the term by Mark Derry in 1993, but also some of the the speculative works that have come before. We look at film, we look at um, we look at music videos and comics and other types of visual ephemera, and talk about basically how yeah, just just kind of like the general. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, tenets or tropes of that particular aesthetic, you know, a culture, you know, a cultural aesthetic. Um, now, what's interesting about that particular uh, movement and aesthetic is that it it it, it kind of stems into uh, into other spaces, right? So, for instance, in the, in the original um, piece by Mark Derry, he uses comics to talk about this particular cultural making space, right? So, um, I have a class now uh, that I taught for the first time last spring called Afrofuturism and the Politics of the Black Superhero. Mm. So the entire course is looking at, you know, is looking at the construction of the black superhero and the political affordances of it and the, and also the processes around that, right? Okay. Yeah, so... Um, no, yeah, that's, that's all super fascinating. Um, and I think we're going to be able to kind of start unpacking a little bit of... 
Yeah, we're gonna unpack a little bit of that nuance uh, once we once we get deeper into the interview. But I I I think that's a strong introduction to get you planted here. Oh no, and we're gonna <laughs> we're 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 gonna get to more. Um, I I just wanted to interject really briefly because all of that is fascinating, and there's so much more that we're gonna unpack. But I want to start kind of adding all of the 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 history and the context into what you're doing. So I kind of want to take it back a little bit put the magnifying glass on your upbringing. Can you tell us where you're from? Yeah, I was born in uh, 1970 in uh, Mississippi. I was born in Brookhaven, which is about um, mm-hmm. it's about uh, an hour, you know, kind of north, I was like northeast of, um, of New Orleans, right? And I was raised in Florida, Mississippi. Uh, came up, um, you know, pretty pretty underprivileged, honestly. And and if you look at like the the median income, you know, it's uh, pretty much came in, up in poverty in the middle of Mississippi, and uh, in, in a small farming community, right? And so, uh, Flora, Mississippi, is about you know, about fifteen miles north of Jackson, which is the, which is the capital. Uh, primarily, it's a ag- agrarian space. Uh, cotton and soybeans are the most uh, prevalent crops that are grown there. You know. Um, yeah, I was raised by my grandparents actually, and uh, you know primarily. And my mom was around too, but she was honestly like working two jobs most of the time to support us. And um, yeah, and, and it, was, it was a very—I didn't know that we were struggling as much as we were at the time because you know you never do, right? You're just kind of being a kid, you know. But um, yeah, so that's some of the the cultural background there. So basically, I came up in that space. Um, ended up going to the military for a, a stint for a quick minute. I uh, was actually in a, an accident that ended that career really quickly. Wow. I was only 17, and then by the time I got out, I was 18. Oh, wow. It was that fast, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I ended up going to, to uh, Jackson State University. I, got, I managed to get a scholarship, and I had studied art there. And I had a, wow. so my background was in commercial art with a, um, with a minor in drawing. Okay. Yeah. And, and so that's yeah, so that's kinda like the, the gist of it. But yeah, I basically came up black and poor in America. <laughs> black black male and poor in America. Right. And so no, and you know, and that story manifests itself in a lot of different ways, right? Being a black man poor in America can really be experienced in a a, a multitude of different ways, especially depending on where in America you grew up. But but talk to us a little bit about the that experience exactly what was it like um growing up poor as a young black child like let's let's kind of walk through your um some of your experiences that you had young you know with family with community um throughout schooling kind of leading up until high school let's say well you know um like again you don't really (laughs) you don't really think about about those things when you're younger i do remember like the first time i realized i was black that was like probably around 1977 i think that's when roots came out <laughs> so okay. the first roots, you know, the good roots, actually, the one with, the one with LeVar Burden, you know, yes, sir. Yes, and sir. Jordan LaForge. Exactly. So I'm like, um, that was probably the first time I thought about race or, or, or start to construct ideas around race. Right. Mm. Um, because I looked at roots and I was like, oh, my God. And I was seeing what was brilliant about it is that the original roots cast white actors who previously had been cast in good roles, quote unquote, protagonist roles like for instance the gentleman that played um, Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch was a slave owner right uh, Ed Asner who played Lou Grant who's a great character I love Lou Grant right from Mary Tyler Moore was was a slave owner you know <laughs> and I was like wow and so just the um, 
that right there, just first of all, it, it made me realize, like, first of all, acting is amazing because they because they totally inhabited those characters. Right. And the other thing is, um, they were it was a really smart way to, to talk about complicity of folk, you know, in America about how this is constructed, you know, as far as like slavery is constructed. And so that to me just blew my mind. You know, I'd never seen Mike Brady act that way. You know, I was like, wow, this is this is amazing to me. And then I started looking um, at the people who are the slaves. And they looked like my grandparents in particular, like they was, you know, mm. and I was like, wow. And I started putting one, I was like, wait a minute, white people used to own us, wow. you know? And, and, and then I, and that's what, that was one of the things that was a smack in the face. And so I was talking to my friends when I went home, when I went to, to school, I was like, did, did y'all see roots? I mean, do you understand what they're, what they're saying? You know? And I think that was the first time I started thinking about it, you know, and as a, when I realized that I was black, you know? And as far as like the poor piece, I mean, there were some times when um, I remember one particular winter, like one one way that we used to kind of like circumvent um, hunger, you know, sometimes was, you know, my grandmother had a giant uh, garden that I would help her with and stuff. So so we would because, as you said, I mean, you know, being poor in a city is very different than being poor in a country. So what would happen was um, my grandfather would. uh he would he was an itinerant worker for different like farming communities. So he would clip pastures or feed cattle, men fences, that kind of stuff. And so in return for that, we would live in whatever house was on that particular land. So we moved around according to like his job, right? Um, and so one particular winter, and I don't really get that cold in Mississippi, but we did have a cold snap this one time where we ran out of food, you know. And wow. it was uh, yeah because we you know because what happens is you know she would she would you, you know grandmother would make. Um, you know, the, uh, preserves and such, and you would put them up, you know, for the winter. That's, that's why they made those Mason jars, which it always is <laughs> always so like trip. I have a particular feeling about this too. Like when I go to like a, a country store or a country restaurant, you know, and they have Mason jars as glasses, you know, yeah. Yeah. as a reappropriation as a reason why those, 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 uh, those, those jars used to be lifesavers, you know, um, anyway, so it's, it's always funny to me how things get reappropriated. But um, anyway, so yeah, so that was a particular piece too. I remember like you know having sleep for dinner a couple of nights. You know, it wasn't that long. You know, what I'm saying we were never homeless. Um, it's just that sometimes the ends didn't quite meet. You know, yeah, yeah. and uh, sometimes you know you might just get fruit for for, for Christmas, that kind of thing. Yeah. I remember sometimes like our one of my fa- one of my grandfather's like uh, employers would you know bring us uh, Christmas fruit. You know, that kind of thing. There's yeah. some bananas and some oranges and apples and stuff. And that'd be Christmas pretty much, you know, that kind of thing. Because to us, that was like, you know, that that was, it was stuff that we didn't get a chance to get sometimes. Yeah. yeah and we didn't have, and we didn't have, a, we didn't have running water or a phone until I put one into the, the first phone in my grandparents' house, I put it in myself after I got out of the military. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's like, wow. you know, it was, uh, yeah, running water, we didn't, we never had in any of the houses that we lived in. Wow. No, that's um, that's a rich history and I think a rich uh, context and it kind of, you know, sets us up for what we're going to be talking about as we get deeper um, into the interview. But I really like kind of like the realization you had with Roots and instantly how you look towards your grandparents, right? Because 1977, if your grandparents were, <laughs> you know, in between 60 and 70 years old, you know what I'm saying? They were probably like one of the second, maybe third generations after emancipation. Um, And again, like 
that context, I think it kind of just ru- like time just rushes through you in such a way. Like when you understand like, yo, a hundred years ago, like stuff was not, was not sweet yeah, it was out here. It was a feeling. It was something that you know, I remember walking around uh, that next day and being just stunned the whole day. It reminded me, you know, it reminded me it, the only the only feeling uh, that was similar was like after 9-11, honestly, yeah, thinking mm-hmm. about the day. But yeah, it was after 9-11. Like I, it was a similar like shock you know, yeah. to my system. And I was like, just kind of wandering around all day thinking like, oh my God, you know, my, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Interesting. So let's talk about kind of, you know, that what inspired you to pursue education and specifically what inspired, like, when did your talent start? Were you always artistically inclined? Um, kind of talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, it seemed like I was, I mean, I think, um, my my mother actually uh, was a literature, um, English and literature uh, major at Alcorn State University, another HBCU. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, got pregnant with me, and it was not in vogue for, for young ladies to be walking around pregnant on campus and stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so she, she dropped out before she finished her, her degree. And, uh, yeah, so she never, you know, she never got a chance to finish up that degree. And so, but she still had a lot of her books laying around. You know, she had a, all of her books that she had purchased, which were rich with illustrations and stuff like that. And I think at an early age, I was interested in symbols and images, you know, at a very early age. And um, my mom was also very interested in science fiction and fantasy and horror herself, okay. action movies. We didn't really have a filter on the things that we could watch on, on you know, the, the, the television, you know. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, so so I think I started to get into storytelling very early. I think before anything, I was a storyteller, you know, mm. and thinking about like stories a lot. Um, I was really one, one of the saving graces was it was it was the, the, the local library, you know, um, and I would visit there quite often the school library. So I, I was an early reader and I uh, read I read uh, a lot, you know, when I was a kid. And I think I started trying to draw very early too, like maybe like around four or five, something like that. I think, yeah, I started drawing before I could read, definitely. And then I had, a, my, well, my Uncle Willie, Willie Albert, shout out to Uncle Willie Albert. You know, back in the day, he was actually like a very talented artist. I mean, he gave it up and he kind of lost it, you know, but uh, in his heyday, I mean, he was, he was probably, he was the most brilliant artist I'd ever seen. He could actually draw anything just by looking at it. And so sometimes he would draw me like, you know, uh, comics and stuff like that, Spider-Man in particular. And one day he just got tired. I think he came in. He was a truck driver at the time. He got tired and, you know, wanted to draw me something. He was like, no, draw it yourself, you know. So I think that's kind of like one of the things that started me trying to draw myself, trying to draw it myself, (laughs) you know. And so, yeah, and so it just became a passion since then. But I've always had a very very visual learning space, you know, as far as like how I think about uh, learning. And, um, you know, I had a very high retention of uh, stories and things like that. So. You know, and I always connected stories to everything. So I was like a star, active stargazer. Like once I realized that the, myth, the the mythologies that you know from like Greek mythology and stuff that there was constellations and all those constellations had stories, and I became like fascinated by astronomy and you know you know yeah. that kind of thing. So I would literally get on top, and this was very dangerous. I'd get on top of this barn that used to be in our that we used to have live close by and climb on top of it and just kind of stare at the stars as you know as the it's kind of idyllic upbringing and you know what I'm saying like you know as a kid you don't realize what you don't have you know sure I was definitely focused on what I did have and uh, and I didn't I wasn't really 
we lived off in the country. Like, so for instance, Florida is already a country town, <laughs> you know, it's already a sleepy town. But then like I lived in the, in the country version of, in the country part of that. So I was actually kind of like reclusive, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a handful of friends, I had about five good, like really, really close friends. I, I was close to, to my classmates because we're a small, you know, group of people, but, you know, I had like five, uh, young men that I was like, like my best friends and, we had a little singing group, you know, we wanted to be like new edition. Okay. Know? Okay. <laughs> Honestly, if we had been in a larger city, man, I think we could have popped Might've... off. huh? No, but what I, what I think is interesting about your story is just kind of like your pers- when obviously hindsight, right. But your perception, looking back on it now, you know, you, you, you didn't feel like anything was like necessarily anything was wrong with the way that you were growing up and living because that's all you knew. Right. And it also kind of sounds like that type of environment and kind of like how you described idyllic lifestyle. It seems like that would be a huge nurturer of your talents, right? Being able to go and look at the stars and, you know, just kind of how, you know, you were starting to recognize things around you. It kind of seemed like it really fed into your talents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I often think about that because, you know, um, I was coming into like, you know, I remember like listening to our little radio and the first time I I heard hip hop, you know, and stuff like that. And I was like, huh, you know, not realizing its origins, where it was coming from. It was just on the radio, you know. And now looking back at it, it's like, you know, like the origins of hip hop and such. I was like, man, if I was in the boogie down back in the day, I probably would have been tagging stuff. I probably would have been trying to spit on my head. You know, I probably would have been in that crew of folk, you know, just think, sure, getting sure. in, getting into stuff, you know. But um, yeah, I've often think about that, you know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. The isolation. Yeah. Well. Yeah. No. The, I I love that. You know, it, it's it just seems right, almost. You know, like the way you're kind of painting the picture right now in, in our conversation, it just kind of seems like it was it was right, you know, and it kind of sets you up truly. Um, for the path that you're on now. So let's talk about specifically like when you get ready to start pursuing higher education, right? Like what was your thoughts around going to college? Was it something that, because your mom had prior experience, was, did she really want that for you? Or was it something you wanted for yourself? Yeah, quite the opposite. What happened was um, I always, you know, once I realized, I think I forget when I realized that doing comics was a job. <laughs> Because, you know, you, you know, you don't really think about products. You just kind of consume them at first. And then, you know, comic books, you know, the, as artifacts, they have like, you know, all the indicia and, the, you know, the letters columns. And it's a, it's like a piece of culture. It's an artifact. It has, a, it has this really physical presence, you know. And then, you know, once you open up the book, you have all the people that made the book. Right. And you don't really start paying attention to, to it at first. And then once you've reread the book several times, you start looking around and say, wait a minute, who is Stan Lee? Wait a minute, who is Jack Kirby? Oh, wait, who, who's the editor? What does the editor do? You know, that kind of stuff. And then it dawns on me, like, when you see different artists doing different books. Like, wait a minute. My granddaddy gets paid for work. This looks like there might be a job. You know, and, and little by little, it starts to dawn on you. Like, wait a minute. Someone's actually making these books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like, oh, so, I can get paid for the stuff that I can get paid for this? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so I told my grandmother, I think I might have been, like, 12. I was like, you know. I want to, because I realized that you have to like move to New York, you know, because all most of the comics are coming out of New York, right? At least the stuff I was reading looks like, because you know it has all the addresses and everything, you know. And I was like, well, I think when I grow up, I'm gonna move to New York and I want to draw comic books. And she, 
cried her eyes out, you know, the thought of me leaving and going to a big city, you know. And so I, wow. I and so I immediately lied to my grandmother. <laughs> and I said, I'm so sorry. I was so, what was I thinking? No, I'm not leaving you. No, that's, that's totally the opposite of what I wanted oh, to do. Wow. So anyway, so I always wanted to be an artist. And so, um, you know, my mom indulged it, you know. And then, you know, uh, along the way, you know, she got married and we had, a, you know, an evil stepdad, you know, <laughs> sort of. And I have like, you know, two two younger siblings because of that marriage. And uh, but we didn't get along. We didn't get along. And I lived with them for a little bit. I think his constructions of masculinity didn't really jive the way I was thinking about who I was going to become, you know. And um, yeah. And so I ended up moving back because I'm because we moved away for a little bit to Brookhaven, back to Brookhaven. And I moved back with my grandparents. And so while there, you know, I finished high school at East Florida High School when it was still a high school. And, uh, you know, I, I was I wanted to be an artist. And but my mom, who still had a lot of sway, even though I didn't live with her anymore at that time, she was like, well, I would rather you like be a doctor or a lawyer or something or retire from the army or something. You're going to cut off your ear and die in a box, you know, <laughs> if you become an artist, you know, because, you, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have you didn't have access to somebody that was a successful artist. Not really, you know? And so a lot of times if you, if you can't see it, you can't be it, you know? And I was very isolated. And so even, so even like my counselors weren't really pushing me to go to school, you know, even though I had like the high, I mean, I graduated valedictorian. It was only 50 of us, but I had the highest grades, you know? Um, and uh, yeah. And then of course, the other thing that was really interesting, as I recall, we had to take the ACT test, you know, it was like kind of really, really enforced very heavily that we take an ACT test. And um, and I did pretty good. I was terrible at math, but I still like scored really high on the test, you know, because for like just the other, the other areas. And um, I took it on a whim. I actually we went out and, and you know we were hanging out and getting ready to graduate. You know how it goes at the end of that like partying and stuff. So I, I wasn't even like really trying. I actually did a really well on it. And uh, nice. but then what happened was, um, uh, you know. I, I, I enlisted in the ESL, I mean, what you call it, the delayed entry program. Into all my friends, all of us went to to the military, you know. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, Navy and Army, you know, and in um, reserve. Like my friend Marvin went into reserve, but most of us um, went into the military, you know. And that was my intent. And then I realized super early that I had made a mistake, you know. I respect the military service. I respect the profession and, and all the service, but it just wasn't the space for me. And so what I realized early on was that, all right, so this is this is my life now. And so um, I was going to, like, stick in it. I was going to do four years and, and use a GI Bill, go to school. That's what I was going to do. And I was going to major in art. But I was hurt during my training. And um, it turns out that because I was valedictorian and my score is so high and that Jackson State, because, you know, HBCUs, take they take you, like, super late into, like, the mm -hmm. deep summer, mm -hmm. that... I still qualified for a scholarship. Oh, nice! I know, right? <laughs> so I actually got a full ride to university. I mean, to Jackson State University, and yeah. it was the first time I realized that parents don't know everything. <laughs> no, yeah, it, and especially, yeah. Well, especially you know, in it's just different generations. You know what I'm saying? Different generations, different time. Um, and I think we, you know when you put it into a more contemporary context, like if you were to, you know, even me kind of growing up at like when technology and video games really like started exploding, right? If I wanted, if I told 
my parents at 10 that, you know, I'm going to be a professional video game streamer and people are going to watch people are going to watch me play Halo for six hours a day and I'm going to make six figures like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not it's just not going to fly. But now you have so much proof and, you know, things change. So I, I can definitely understand that. So talk to us about your HBCU experience and how that further um, pushed you deeper into your interest in art. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So so basically, um, I, I went to Jackson State, like right at right before the Berlin Wall fell. It was like, you know, 89. So I was there from 89 to like 93 in undergrad. And um, one of my favorite professors, one of my favorite teachers went to Jackson State. So I went there on, a, you know, I said, okay, well, she went to Jackson State. I'm going to go to Jackson State. You know, again, if you can't see it, you can't be it. She loved it. Right. So I was like, all right, go there. Um doing art classes and it was kind of the la- one of the last hurrahs of like, you know, that early of the, of the HBCUs. I mean, it was like Spike Lee's school days was in, you know, was out and, you know, people, you could see people like pledging and, you know, doing the, that whole thing, you know, <laughs> it, it was, um, and we were actually a really cool uh, space because, you know, we were like our, our athletic conference. I'm not really a huge, you know, sports fan, but it's like, I knew that we were really good at, in the SWAC, which is a Southwestern uh, athletic conference, right? Okay. So we're number one in basketball, football, golf. Um, Interesting. Walter Payton's brother, Eddie Payton, is one of the most amazing like golf golfers, and he was a golf coach. And so they have so oh, they wow. had a black golf team that was like spectacular. Amazing. Um, and also too, like the Sonic Boom of the South. I don't know if you've seen like the HBCU bands, mm-hmm. the Southern bands, oh, yeah. but oh my god, the Jackson State Marching Band was on the. Um, I think it was Motown 25, the 25th anniversary of Motown or something like that. And, um, and they opened the show, you know, and so my, and so my roommate was in the band and it was just a lot of celebratory. It was like, everybody knew each other, you know, it was like a one big family. One of the things I love to tell my students about was like at the time, you know, the, the, uh, the Cosby show was still on and so was a different world. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so what would happen was Thursday nights, Nothing happened from like seven to eight, except everybody would be on, you know, at home, you know, in their rooms watching the Cosby show and different world. Right. Right. Because we were living a different world. You know, we were in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And so for like, if you if you like listen outside, you know, if you just put your ear outside to the window, you could actually hear the whole campus laugh together. Like whenever, whenever those funny, you know, you could hear, you know, the, the everybody was inside watching the Cosby Show and, and watching the diff, a different world. And we would, whenever the laugh track, when something funny would happen, you could act. It's almost like the entire campus was like laughing together. It was, it's wonderful, you know. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, I was in the honors college. I was in the, in the W. E. B. Du Bois honors college too. So you know, that was another thing. Like, so we were like in the. Uh, at first, they put us on like the top two floors, you know. So we had these these crazy smart, <laughs> blurred like pre blurred, you know, dudes, yeah. you know, getting into yeah. a lot of stuff. And then we had an honors dorm, so they actually built a whole dorm just for like the honor students, you know. That's was really cool. And that was my sophomore year. Um, the art department at the time was very small, you know, mm-hmm. but we had great teachers. You know, they, we didn't have a, really have a strong graphic design thing going, but. I was classically trained in, in, in sculpture and art and I wanted to be a sculptor actually. That's what I really wanted to do at first, mm-hmm. but I was pragmatic, you know, I was like, well, you know, I can't, I'm, I, I can't, I got to feed myself. So I have to do this graphic thing, you know? Yeah. So I would actually, I was like a cottage industry. I, I started a little business called up all night graphics 
and I would hand do flyers for all the frats and sororities and stuff and for like, you know, the SGA and stuff like that. And so I became like a cottage industry. And um, over a, a couple of years, you know, I was like looking for partners. I was making, I was always, so the, my whole thing was like people could call me any time of night and in the morning you could pick up your art, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so like the, the alphas, the kappas, you know, sigmas, I would be doing like artwork for them, you know? Oh, wow. And then later on, I started like to to, to to kind of rent myself out as a as a um, a speechwriter and as a uh, what do you call it uh, campaign manager for people. So I was doing like so if you're running for like Miss Jackson State or for like student council or something like that, then I, I you know I'd help design your stuff and that kind of thing. I was always looking for somewhere to 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 you know to to, to advance you know that kind of thing. So I was always an entrepreneur, you know, um, and. Uh, at an early age, I was trying to get that together. Now, what's interesting is that math has always been my, you know, my arch enemy because <laughs> we had mm-hmm. we had terrible math teachers actually mm-hmm. coming up in high in high school. So um, I was really underprepared for math, you know, even like intermediate math. So right. I had a nine o'clock math math course. It was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, nine o'clock, and. I swear to God, the, the, the gentleman that was teaching it was, whew, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. I was like, and I made an F in that class, man. I, fl- oh, I totally wow. failed it. I had four A's and an F my first semester. Four A's. Let's, let's, let's process this. Four A's and an F. Yeah. And I was like despondent because I was going to lose my scholarship. I lost my scholarship. I wasn't going to be able to, to be able to pay for school, you know? I wouldn't have been able to finish. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. what happened was I re-enrolled. I got a tutor. And we had a new black faculty uh, teacher. Her name was uh, Dr. Pamela Hurd, young black woman. who She had just started teaching at Jackson State. She was a phenomenal math teacher. Phenomenal. So I went from, like, um, you know, failing math to actually having the highest GPA in the class. Yep. Wow. Look what a good teacher will do. Right? Oh, man, she was amazing, man. And then the other thing was, um, I get an emotional thing about it because she saved me. The other thing was, um, was uh, I would imagine math as a monster, you know? Mm-hmm. So I used my imagination to be like, okay, I have to vanquish this beast, you yes. know? <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be him or me, you know? Because right. uh, I was going to go back to that to that existence that I grew up in, and I just didn't want that, you know? And uh, that was also, like, a huge um, motivator was not only failure, but also poverty, you know what I'm saying? Because when, when I was on campus, I could make money. I was connected. I had, run, I had a shower, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right. So um, it was, I, I hated going home because of that sometimes, honestly. Wow. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I was supposed to speak at Jackson State as a, as a, uh, um, a uh, keynote uh, back in, I think it was April, I believe. Okay. And um, I just realized, <laughs> it's so silly, that Pamela Hurd still teaches there. She's a really? dean. She's a dean there now. Like I think she's in charge of the, the honors college now. Actually, wow. So okay. I was, and I was disappointed because you know, for, it's, you know, it never dawned on me that she actually might still be at the school. That's crazy, right? Yeah. So that yeah. means that she was there when I was there, probably when I was teaching it, because I went back to Jackson State and, and kind of like helped build that graphic design program mm-hmm. later after I got my degrees. But um, I wanted to thank her personally, you know. When, but I hopefully I'll still get a chance to. You know? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and so no, I, I think that's. Again, painting painting that picture, right? Painting the context for where you're at now. So let's let's start getting into you know your pursuit of 
more advanced degrees um, in your professional life um, as an author. And let's let's kind of walk ourselves back into UCR, how we started. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is what happened. I, I actually did really well as a, you know, in, in undergrad. I worked very hard. I worked very hard. And, and, and I was I worked for the school newspaper. I was a cartoonist for the school newspaper. I was just, you know, I was always trying to make art, you know. Mm-hmm. And it so happens that well, two two big things happened. One was the fact that our our department was under accreditation for NASA, the National Association of Schools and Art and Design. That's our accrediting body for a lot of schools. Um, my department head, Dr. Anderson Macklin, God rest him, he went to school with several gentlemen, um, Don Pilcher, George Hardiman, and this gentleman named... Um, Oh man, what is his last name? I'm forgetting his name right now. I can see his face. It doesn't matter right now. Like it's, it might come to me in a second. Ah, anyway, but they they went all went to art school together. They went to Penn State together, right? And um, what happened was uh, they were part of our accrediting team, those men. And so they came and looked at the school and stuff like that. And it turns out that before then, um, Dr. Macklin uh, had spoken to uh, to them about you know, us, me and my friend Chalmers, who were like the top art students coming to uh, to his school, you know, maybe getting a, a, um, a master's degree, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, me and Chalmers didn't know what a master's degree was. You know, we had no idea what advanced learning was. We we didn't, we didn't know anything about what University of Illinois, what the Big Ten was even, you know, not mm-hmm. really. So um, we actually got a chance to, um, to uh, go to the school. Like, so what happened was because they had came to the school, they had, I think they had some extra plane tickets or something like that. And um, they flew me and Dr. Macklin and, and Chalmers to the University of Illinois. This is our junior year, right? So they're already thinking about what our career is going to look like um, before, even before we even knew, right? And so when I got on that campus, I was like, wow. You know, it like it just showed like, how how underfunded Jackson State was and how mm-hmm. huge the world was. And we had no idea, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to that campus, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's like going to those, those land grant institutions like Ohio State and Michigan and, and University of Michigan and stuff like that. They're huge campuses. They look like, you know, when you think college in like those, those movies and stuff, you know, yeah, <laughs> in fact, they've been that. in movies, you know? Right. In fact, I don't even know if you, you remember this, you remember this movie called um, Risky Business with Tom Cruise? No, Sounds familiar, but I doubt it. But I doubt yeah. It's a great yeah. movie, man. Okay, so at the end of it, he was, he wanted to get into Harvard, right? And at the end of it, he he because of what he did, he messed up his chance to go to Harvard. He said, "Oh, I guess I'm gonna go to University of Illinois," you know, because it's because the, the the Big Ten is like probably just a little step under the Ivy Leagues, you know. And when we got there, okay. we were like blown away by it, and that was the only thing we wanted after we saw it. I didn't even I didn't even know I didn't know it existed, and now that I knew it was out there, we and we weren't we wanted it. You know, yeah, that was it. That was it. So yeah, and so um, now that I knew that you could get a master's degree and we could you could get mer- you know, we didn't even occur to us like how do you get a PhD? I had no idea. But, mm-hmm. but when Dr. Macklin took us to that school, he put he lit a fire on us. You know, yeah. Uh, and so what ends up happening is um, the other thing is I got an internship at uh, Declaring Ledger, which is like the biggest newspaper in Mississippi. It's in Jackson, Mississippi, and I worked for wow. them for a while, and that was really my first big paying gig, you know, mm-hmm. as an artist, I got like a, a nice job, like right out of school, you know, right. but it wasn't enough. And I was like, you know what? So I ended up getting into graduate school. Uh, this is 95. 
or so. So I worked at Declaring Ledger over a summer and then I, I left for school. And uh, while I was there, I fell in love with graphic design and I, I managed to get two masters there. So, you know, I um, I tried three times to get into the master's, pro- the MFA program at, you know, in, in graphic design and I was denied mm-hmm. twice. Wow. Yeah. And I just kept trying. And so uh, the first time was, you know, I applied when I was at Jackson State and I got into the MA program for, for education. So the deal was like, OK, well, maybe I can get this and then kind of segue into the MFA. So I applied again when I was there, but I wasn't good enough at design. I was I didn't understand what was happening. So what I did is I started taking classes, their classes, their undergrad classes. I started sitting in on the undergrad classes. And let me tell you super humbling like to be a grad student and you look at these undergrads and how like talented they were and how more advanced they were you know wow yeah so because of the schedule i ended up taking their most advanced classes first so i ended up going backwards through their program but little by little i started getting better at it and then one of my mentors there tom kovacs guy at rest him he told me like you know what you should probably do a portfolio what you would do back in the day you would submit slides you know like on a slide he was like you need to print out your work and submit an actual portfolio so we can see it in real time, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. It was like, super expensive, you know, cause back in the day, color prints were so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and out of 88 people that, that, that applied that year, um, only five of us got in, you know, and over that, and out of that five, only three of us graduated because two people dropped out. And I found out later that, they they basically like let me in because they because I, I kept doing it and they thought that I would just fail out and I would stop you know oh wow I was only the third um, this is what I found out much later you know and uh, I was only the third African American to get the MFA in design at that school wow and then I became their first chair later oh wow black chair only it was I was interim for like a year or so. And I was the second African-American to get tenure there at that school because I went to Jackson State and I came back. They hired me back to teach there. Wow. Right. And so now two of my two of my grad students are professors there. No, that's beautiful. And so and just to just for context, an MFA is essentially uh, an artist. Yeah, it's like it's like having a doctorate in art. Exactly. Exactly. Terminal degree in art. Yeah. So now. Now, with all of this history and all of this context, right, bringing it back to your your work with Afrofuturism, speculative fiction, and what, what what you're doing here at UCR, right? Let's try and kind of paint a quick picture for our black students, right? When 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 a black student signs up for any one of, you know, Professor Jennings' courses, you know, what what can that student expect to? What perspective can they expect to gain through the way that they view media and culture? You know, through this this lens of speculative fiction and stuff? Well, first thing that, that they realize, especially if they're African-American, is they are the subject. Mm. And their, their future is the only thing that matters in that space. Wow. That's the first thing. Because Afrofuturism comes from this notion that, um, you know, from the way that Derry was talking about it originally, was that we already have survived, we already live in a post-apocalyptic America because we survived the Maafa. You know, we are we are the... Really quickly, no, really quickly. I'm sorry. I'm I, I'm super excited that you you brought up the maafa. Can you please tell our students what what that means? Yeah, it's a it's a term. I want to say it's Swahili, correct? Yeah, I believe so. It means it means Holocaust or or um, yes. or devastation or you know it basically it means bad event. It's different meanings, but you know essentially it's like Black Holocaust. You know, it's 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 a it's a term used yes. for the Middle Passage and for slavery. You know. 
but Maafa is the is the is the unmaking of, of black of black people. You know, when we came across mm. and would turn from people into products, right? Because that's what slavery does. It actually like it it unmakes your humanity, you know, and that's the kind of thing. Yes. And so, to me, you know, to think about black futures, you know, you look at where we are right now. I mean, you know, a black future is still a radical notion. You know, yes. think about like how COVID has affected us. Thinking about like you know people being murdered in the streets by police and also that, you know, jo- just every access to, to good health care, access to good food, access to best jobs, you know, these, these particular aspects were still, they, they were designed to, to function that way. You know, mm-hmm. um, there was never ever a supposed, supposed to be a space for black people in America, you know, and that's, right. that's the truth. The three places that were, were designed for us, and I've said this in previous interviews was the slave ship, Mm-hmm. the plantation and the grave mm-hmm. and then rinse and repeat. That was, that was the only imagination for our future that was supposed to be there. Right. The other thing is that, you know, race is a, is a construct, right? It's like, you know, there really aren't, there's no such thing as black and white people really. It's just people. Right. Mm-hmm. But we get ingrained with that. We get taught that these things, you know, these particular boxes are things that we're supposed to adhere to. Yeah. So, to me, you know, Afrofuturism, Black speculative culture is a realignment of like our our reconnection to to Afrocentric space and speculating where we could be, and also reimagining pasts too. Yeah. Because in some ways, and this is my friend Lisa Yazik says, uh, she teaches down at Georgia Tech, is that now it's also like a a radical um, reimagining of the history of the future. Because, see, if you think about it, like, if you look at, like, all the science fiction and fantasy that was coming out in the 1940s and 50s, we're not there. You know? We're not there. That's why that's why a character like Nichelle Nichols on Star Trek was such a radical idea. You know, and which was, and, you know, um, and there's a story, and it's like, it's now become almost cliche. But, you know, Nichelle Nichols, who plays Lieutenant Uhuru back in that show, the, the original Star Trek, she was going to leave the show. Yeah. And Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was a huge fan of the show. And she wow. and he's the one that asked her to stay. Because he said, You represent us in the future and it's important that you're on this show. Please you know, and it's the only it's one of the only shows that he could watch, you know, with his family. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, and, a big and, fan and, of if, it, yeah. and if I can just interject for a second, because everything everything that you're talking about is just so fascinating. And I kind of, you know, hopefully I can kind of paint some parallels, right? Because on the surface level, right, we're talking about art slash graphic design, right? Um, but the minute that we dive below the surface, we're talking about history. We're talking about psychology. We're talking about um, philosophy. Um, all of, obviously, culture. Um, it's all intertwined into this idea of speculative Afrofuturistic fiction, right? That, you, that you're studying, that you're teaching, that you're projecting. And really what it is is, which I feel like is one of art's uh, main objectives, right, is that it, it, it instantly challenges what we think we know. You know what I'm saying? Um, what we've come to understand um, in how with a slightly different perspective or a slightly different visual or a slightly different framing, we've now created this whole philosophy, right, that goes into what Afrofuturism is and that idea that we have gone through and are currently moving through the Ma'afa, right? Um, I think it's just so beautiful that you brought that up because 
I'm sure the majority of our audience has never even heard of that term, heard of that concept, heard of that type of language to describe, you know, what slavery actually was for a period of hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and to a certain extent is still ongoing. Um, talk to me really quick, you know, because we're, we're coming up on time and it's it's obvious that we're going to have to have many, many um, episodes about this topic. But talk to me about a black artist responsibility. Are you, as Professor Jennings, do you, can, is there ever a time where you're just doing art for art's sake? No. Okay. Talk to us about that. And here's the thing. And that's, you know, uh, it's something I talked to my friend, Stacy Robinson, who's visited our campus. He's the other half of Black Kirby. So if you've okay. seen the shows on like Luke Cage and the Candyman shows and a new one that we're doing too, about, based on the character Eben, that's our next show. It's going to be at the, you know, the Culver Center. Um, Beautiful. Is one of the things that we kind of talk about all the time is that is is black people aren't free, totally free yet, you know, because our lives are still being treated like they're they're worthless, you know. Um, we don't have all the civil rights that we that we need, you know. Reparations have never been paid to us for what's happened to our ancestors and the, and the contributions of black people to the building of this country. We're mm-hmm. still treated like we're outsiders, you know. Um, until those particular things are, are taken care of, then it's like, I can't really make an abstract painting that doesn't mean that that, that, that you are projecting onto. Uh, I really can't do performance art that's not connected to, you know, a political, a black political agenda, you know? Mm. You know, because in, so in some ways, um, it's almost like white supremacy has chosen our subject. And that's not mm. fair. You know, it's not fair. But, you know... I think I think that if you're politicized in a particular way and you're African American or you're a people person of color in this particular point in time, that it is your responsibility to make work that speaks to these things. It is I think I feel that, you know, I really do. And you know, and and it's not and it, and if you don't feel that way or someone who's listening doesn't feel that way, that's totally fine. You know. Right. I'm not gonna vilify you or call you out about it. Sure. But it's just that we live in like really troubled times and you know, I always think about like, uh, you know, what James Baldwin said about artists. He said, artists are here to disturb the peace. And uh, that's what my aim is. And um, mm-hmm. when I think about like my students, I want them to leave empowered and to feel and to, and to kind of engender a constant sense of curiosity. You know, that's mm-hmm. the deliverable. It's not the A, right? How can I get an A? <laughs> no, it's it's the curiosity. It's like, you know, it's the question, Why? Why am I doing this? What's happening around me? How can I learn more about this thing? This seems fascinating. I want that to be the kernel that you leave this, the class with, you know? Yeah, and I and I think the beautiful thing about that is, right, professors that have that approach and that philosophy, right? Because our our, our children that they're taught to get the A, right? Um, they're taught to work twice as hard to get that A, you know, because of our circumstance, you know, um, and a lot of times in the pursuit of that particular form of excellence, you know what I'm saying? That curiosity, that want, that, that, that need or want to know why it gets lost in translation. And then they go into higher education with that attitude. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, professors carry out their education process with that framework, with that attitude. And so we're just, we're just creating cookie cutter students, cookie cutter students that aren't 
thinking critically about where they stand in the world and how much power and how radical that in it of itself is, you know, and that's why I love, you know, when you talk about like how, how we philosophize or I don't know how to say that word, but our philosophy, you know, around radicalness, like what is radical? Well, you occupying this space and engaging in this critical thinking like that's radical because this system in this country never wanted you to get to that point. Right. Standing up, loving yourself and injecting a black political ideological agenda into your arc is radical by nature, um, in, in the context of our society. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I, I just really value that. And, you know, I want students to understand, right? Like when the reason why we're doing this, the reason why I have you, um, and people like you on this show, right. Is because you're, you're inevitably, whether the student is aware of it or not, you're going to nurture their their genius. You're going to nurture their imagination and make sure that by the time they're leaving your class at the end of the quarter or whatever, something inside of them, right, is is going to be that much more curious about the way that they view um, black media in the world, right? Recognizing symbols, recognizing uh, you know, negative stereotypes and tropes or representations that we see. So, um, you know, I, I think that's just so, so powerful. And, you know, I, I, I love the abstract, you know, um, I, I, I love the abstract. I, I have a psychology background, you know, for my undergrad and, I love it because all everything to me is linked to psychology, right? So even when I'm looking at your virtual background right now, like even if I've never been exposed to Afrofuturism before, like I'm just looking at that and I, my imagination is just going nuts. Like I'm so captivated. I'm engaged. What what could this possibly mean? What does this look like? Um, and I think that's that is what you're bringing into into um, your classrooms and your teaching and even for me, just, you know, have only met you, uh, you know, a handful of times and never have taken your class. Like I can already um, feel that, you know, just from your story and the things that you're talking about. And so um, we're, com- we're, we're coming up on time. And again, we're, we're definitely going to have, you know, way more conversations in the future to really unpack these things. But you already kind of briefly touched on it. But I, I you know, just to end on in that spirit of optimism and hope that our ancestors carried forward. Um, and so keeping within that spirit and that tradition, just talk to our students a little bit more about what your optimistic vision of the future um, looks like for future generations of black scholars that, you know, come through UCR. You know, we, um, <clears throat> so I teach three classes now on Afrofuturism. So mm-hmm. one is on, superheroes you know one is on like aesthetics to a certain degree and the other one is um around race and horror actually you know so stuff like Candyman, you know lovecraft country that kind yes. of stuff um do we look at like the utilities of these particular narratives and i think that um i've become a lot hopeful of late despite the fact that we live in these dark times and stuff and honestly i think it's, i can directly relate it to being a dad because you know i'm a, uh, you know i know i have a like 14 month old son now you know and so to me, the future is looking like him. I have to, I, I can't afford to not be hopeful. You know, yeah. the other thing too, is I think that, you know, if you're going to be an effective teacher, you can't, you can't really teach out of that fear box, you know, 
you got to teach out the love, the love box, you know. And I, you know, I get this from this this book called Chasing the Perfect. It's about like uh, the modernist, um, the modernist movement from the Bauhaus. And you know, she, the, the author, she talks about like teaching from fear or teaching from love, you know. And I think that if you make things out of love, then you can't help but build a better future, you know. Um, and love is radical. Let's not. No, yeah, love is radical and either. joy. The other thing, too, is black joy is a radical act, too, you know. And so, yes, I do talk about, like, hard subjects. I do. I don't I don't really mince my words in class when I talk about it. You know, I talk about racism and blackness and and those constructs, you know, openly, you know, because it's a safe space. But, you know, I do want people to understand, like, you're building a better future just by being in that space. And that we, and that we are we are the, the um, you know, as sons and daughters you know, of uh, former slaves and, and, and our ancestors, you know, we are the dreams of our ancestors, you know, you know, and we, and again, we're all like black unicorns. You are not supposed to be doing what you're doing. <laughs> you know, we there's, that's what I'm saying. There was never a space that was made for us. And, and we've successfully made a space despite, yeah. in spite of like amazing odds. Like for instance, case in point, you know, you're familiar now with the, uh, you know, with the Tulsa race massacre, right? So, it's interesting to me that people never really focus on the fact that they built back immediately. So they only, mm. they only were down for like a year or so they built back black wall street in a year. You mm. know, it drives the people on the ground crazy there too. Like for instance, if you go to, if you go to Tulsa now, um, these people were like decimated. They didn't have any homes. They lived in tents and fought for their land and stuff. And, and some of them decided like, you know what, we're not going to go and we're going to mm. actually rebuild this space. And they did. So there's a building there in, in, in Greenwood right now with a stamp on it. You know how they do like the, the year stamps? 1922, only a year after the whole space was destroyed. You know? Wow. So if that's not an Afrofuturist superhuman notion, man, I mean, we can we come from some we come from some really, really powerful people. And I think, yeah. you know, we can't be we can't be afraid to like to like dip into that, you know. Yeah. In fact, it's almost it's our it's our it's our right and our destiny, our and it's also like you know it's it does a disservice to 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 people if you don't. You got to shine and shine hard because you know life is short. You know yeah. life is short. You know we know that we see that every day now. You know yeah, nothing yeah. is promised. So you know yeah. that's what I'm saying. So it's like that the the classes set up a certain type of thinking that thinks about design and race. You know like race as a as a graphic as a type of design. You know or speculative design. I'm actually working on a new class called critical race design studies where I think about like, you know, critical about racism as a design object kind of thing, you know, yeah. and kind of unpacking like the, the graphic um, representations of a system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want students to leave with like critical thinking, thinking positively and understanding that they come from a, a tradition of radical reimagination or, or like the black radical imagination, you know, tradition, if you, if you borrow from like Robin D.G. Kelly's book, you know, um, Freedom dreams, you know. There's a uh, you have to first imagine yourself in a better space in order for you to get there, you know. So I think like the first Afrofuturist was the first slave that said, "You know what? This ain't working for me. (laughs) (laughs) This is not working for me." I'm trying to, yeah, no. um, In you know, I just just in closing, you know, uh, you know, I want students to hear this, these types of things and instantly just, just be challenged to be a little bit more imaginative about the, 
the space that you hold in society um, and where that that puts you and add the historical context into it. And what I really love is just this concept of Afrofuturism essentially um, is what we're already going through. Like the future is now. Right. Us being alive is radical, um, you know, for better or worse. Like we're here and we're still we're still pushing on. And while for, you know, for for sake of consumption, it's stylized, right, in a certain way, such as your background, right? But the underlining message is this is what's going on right now um, in connecting those dots, which I feel like over the course of this this conversation, those dots were connected for me. Um, that's what it's about. That's the essence when we're talking about speculative Afrofuturistic uh, fiction. Yeah, yeah. Just the other thing, too, I was thinking about, you know, this this new thing that just happened uh, I'm really proud of. Um, okay. So over the last decade or so, you know, I've been doing like interviews like this for different media. And mm-hmm. my home uh, flagship university, University of Mississippi, they have this thing called Conversations. Mm-hmm. And it's a collection of, of uh, you know, luminaries talking about their work. So they just put out a book of my uh, my conversations. I'm the first black cartoonist that they've done. They have a, they have a subsection for like conversations with cartoonists, you know? Yeah. So like all the people on that list are like people like Stan Lee and like Alan Moore and people like that. So yeah, it just came out. And uh, yeah, so it's a collection of my interviews for the last decade or so. It's called John Jennings Conversations. No, that's beautiful. Students, students, students. This is what, this is, the, and this is the beautiful thing about us being engaged in this right now. Um, and when it comes to prospective students who, 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 who are into these types of things, or maybe who aren't into these types of things and want to be, you know, we, we have Titans over here, you know, it's some super smart. We have Titans over here. Um, people at the top of their game that have such a passion about servicing you, the student, and in particular, um, our black students. And, you know, that's what I wanted to capture. And I think we did a pretty good job at capturing it um, for this interview. So, um, Professor Jennings, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. Um, I was super happy to amplify your voice today. Obviously, we're going to have to do a whole speculative fiction series on the blue, gold, and black because it, it's just that fascinating. It's, and I it's, think really, it, it's really wide, man. And, yeah. it, and, it, and it translates into every facet of life, psychology, spirituality, you know, physicality, all, all of these different things that we, we, we deal with on a day-to-day. So thank you so much for giving me your time and being here. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to coming back. Yes, sir. No doubt. So blue, gold and black. Check us out. Um, Super happy to amplify voices. We'll catch you guys next time. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later.